How often do you hear about mic drop innovations in radial to peripheral equipment? Here's one. The Sublime Radio Access Platform from Sermotics offers 250-centimeter rapid exchange balloon catheters. That's long enough to reach from the wrist to and through the pedal loop. And their unmatched deliverability ensures they get there. Ready for another mic drop? Sublime guide sheaths are available in lengths up to 150 centimeters in both six and five French platforms. The Sublime portfolio even includes high-performance support catheters in lengths up to 200 centimeters. Getting the picture? The Sublime radio access platform is engineered to make wrist-to-foot access not only possible, but practical. Don't just think radio to peripheral, think wrist-to-foot with the Sublime radio access platform. Visit sublimeradio.com to learn more. This week on the Backtable Podcast. You need to have staff at your facility that feel like they have ownership, you know, that they care. It becomes their home, those patient outcomes are their successes as much as they are yours. And I think where a lot of OBL operators and physician entrepreneurs can fail is they think those staff are interchangeable or replaceable. And really, anyone who can make a fire drill go away for you or avoid a headache before you have a headache is worth their weight in stone because for all of us, time is our most critical resource. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. This is Aaron Fritz as your host this week, and I'm very excited to introduce my special guests, Krishna Manava from Columbus, Ohio, and Chaz Sanders from Margin. Welcome, guys. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Aaron. Great to be here. Thank you for having us. So I'm going to do some intros. You guys both have unique stories. But real quick, I just want to tell a story about how Christian and I met because I'm from Columbus, Ohio. And, you know, Christian and I connected on LinkedIn, you know, a while back. But Christian, right before it was Thanksgiving, you just happened to send me a message on LinkedIn about a recent episode. And we were about to, literally like about to board a flight to Columbus. And then we were able to connect in Columbus in person. And you showed me your lab and introduced me to your staff. And I got to, to meet everybody. And then we got to, you know, have drinks afterwards. And, it was just such a great connection to make and so serendipitous timing-wise. And so I just wanted to say, I appreciate you reaching out to me and us getting to know each other. Yeah, that was that was awesome. It was great meeting your wife and just happened to be perfect timing. And, you know, you being from Columbus, you know, we have that that connection. So So I really enjoyed it. Yeah. But tell our audience about, you know, where you've been, where you're at, how long have you been in the outpatient setting? Yeah, for sure. So I grew up in Ohio, Cincinnati, and then trained. Uh, I went to med school in Akron at a six-year combined program, then stayed in Ohio, did my general surgery residency at uh, University Hospitals in Cleveland with Case Western, left to go to New Orleans for my vascular fellowship. So I sort of did the traditional five, then two of vascular. Then I landed in Chicago for an academic job at Loyola University for a couple of years, gained a lot of experience there. Then my wife and I grew up here and wanted to eventually get back here. She's a physician as well. So we both wound up back in the central Ohio area together. I was in an independent community hospital and it was an opportunity to really build a program. So the first 12 years of my career were in um, an employed setting, both academic and then in a community setting. But 
you know, that really, really helped me gain a ton of experience, program building and things like that. But, you know, five or six years into practice, I really got a little bit of exposure into the outpatient world and that side of it. And it always was fascinating. So I had been thinking about the the outpatient setting for the last five or six years, but finally, due to various reasons, I ultimately made the leap about two years ago. And uh, of course, I made the leap about a month before the uh, the pandemic hit. So that so that was interesting. So that's sort of where I'm at right now. So for the last two years now, I've had uh, an independent outpatient practice and OBL, and it's I sort of haven't looked back since then. Cool. Yeah. And I forgot we had that New Orleans connection too, because Gopi and I trained down there. Well, great. Thank you for that. Chaz, tell us a little bit about your background in healthcare and, and kind of lead us up to the point where you started Margin and what inspired it. Great question. I, I was first exposed to healthcare by my mother. She's a nurse's aide, specifically worked in a career with hospice patients. And so I remember going to nursing homes where my mom was working, was told to kind of sit in the corner and be quiet when we didn't have childcare. But one of the things I noticed about my mother early on is that she cared. She really cared about the patients. And when you're in healthcare and you see the people who are really patient centric versus those who aren't, it's just an inspiring difference. And so, you know, kind of growing up, I was always good at math and science. My intent was to go to med school. I was pre-med right after undergrad. I had the opportunity to teach at a school that I, I went to for high school. I, I went a scholarship to a boarding school. So I went back and taught science for a couple of years. And then I started turning my sights towards medicine, but I had no money. And so my thought was, let me sell some things to doctors for a year or two, save a few dollars, get a look at healthcare before I jump in. So I went to Johnson and Johnson in the pharmaceutical role. And pretty quickly, I was dissuaded from, from med school, you know, working with primary care physicians every day in the pharma role. And so I worked my way in the med device and kind of did the electrical carpentry and plumbing, if you will, you know, pacemakers, AAA, orthopedic spine, worked my way up through the food chain and sales, and then shifted over to an internal role in marketing. That was at Zimmer Biomed and worked my way all the way up to vice president of strategy for Zimmer Biomed, helping out with M&A activities and long-term growth plans. At that point, I was kind of losing my traction to med device. And I was thinking about starting my own organization. I had just finished an MBA at NYU and didn't know what was next and didn't know if I had the chops to start my own company at that point. And so I got recruited aggressively by DaVita to help run their lifeline division, which is roughly when I was there, 90 OBLs throughout the U.S. and Puerto Rico. And so a couple of years after working at DaVita's lifeline division and DaVita since divested that division, I kind of thought about my relationship with physicians and my career and my path. And really what I realized is that my entire career, I was on the opposite side of the table as physicians. So I had great relationships, but I wasn't part of the team. I was always on the other team. And I wanted to figure out a way that I could start an organization where I can really truly just benefit my customer, which is the physician and contribute to healthcare in the U.S. And so that's kind of how we got into margin. And it's been rewarding. I mean, you know, my relationships with my customers are fantastic, very, very fulfilling. And I think we do our part to help deliver good care. All right. So we'll talk about the benefits of margin later in the show as we dive into this content. But today we're going to talk about disposables for the OBL, getting all the supplies you need for patient care without overspending. But just some quick advice for those getting started with planning an OBL. And Krishna, you went through this recently. Like, where do you recommend they start with their research and business plan? Just thousand foot view. Like, what's a good place to start researching? Yeah, that's a great question. And I sort of bootstrapped this whole thing together. And the problem I learned with doing that was 
you start eliminating resources as far as people and, and, and advisors to help you. So besides talking to colleagues who have done it, and the numbers are very few, but I had a few close friends who have done it, gathered some advice. But then I, I interviewed, I met with several companies that help physicians start OBLs, ASCs. And then I wound up landing on the one that I went with for a number of reasons. But they said, look, do you know how to make a business plan? And for me, you know, I was like, well, of course I do. But I really didn't. I just didn't want to sound stupid. But they're like, look, you need a business plan. I'm like, well, why? I'm going to be successful. I know my numbers. I know my volumes. I'm, I, you know, this is going to be fine. I know the market. And they're like, well, you know that you need a business plan to get money. You need a business plan to, you know, finance equipment. You need a business plan for a number of things, not just to justify you doing this. So they're like, let us help you with this. And not only that, but the business plan will provide sort of a guide for you to benchmark yourself and where you're at, at, you know, three months, a year, five years. So I really got a better understanding of why it's important. So my advisory firm that helped me start the practice and the OBL really helped me with that. And they were a great resource. So for me, I was not only starting an OBL, I was starting a new private practice simultaneously, which is a little different than some who already have a private practice. Yeah, I, th I think we're all guilty at certain stages of that sort of fake it till you make it. You're used to being you know, the smart guy in the room and you walk in and they're like, are you sure you know what you're doing? You're like, yeah, yeah, I could pull this off. But we're all scared inside. I mean, it is a scary thing. It's not just a regular business. It's a healthcare business. And I don't think you, we were talking recently on another show about intelligent ignorance and just not knowing what you don't know actually helps you kind of take that push forward. I'm sure you've seen it, Chaz, with a number of people starting OBLs. You have anything to add to that? Yeah, I think, you know, Unfortunately, it seems like the system in the U.S. has always been that everyone's coming at the physician for everything, right? Everyone wants to sell you something. Everyone wants to get something from you. And it's really hard to determine when you're starting a project like this, you know, what do you need to pay for? What do you not? How much control do you need to have? How much should you relinquish? And I think physicians more than most entrepreneurs have a hard time relinquishing control and letting other verticals in their organizations take the lead on things. And one of my advice is somebody kind of jumping into this space is embrace what you don't know, acknowledge it and make sure you can pinpoint it, but find someone that you can trust because there's so many services out there. Everyone's pitching something, right? But find someone you can trust and really tune in on the things that you don't know. You're going to make mistakes. There's so many nuances to open up a facility that you can't do everything perfect. It's just making sure you don't make a catastrophic mistake, you know, that's going to limit your ability to be successful. Yeah. So recently we, we kind of talked with Mary Cosentino and Goke Akawande on a recent episode about choosing your capital equipment, your namely your imaging equipment. Today, we're going to jump more into like disposables. And so that was one, I kind of took a poll from prior guests and OBL owners out there to ask some questions. And one of the big questions Mary says she gets all the time is, What's the best approach to outfitting disposables for an OBL? And so why don't I start with Krishna? How did you start thinking about that? And then Chaz will kind of fill in with more information. Okay. Yeah, this is great because it jumps off nicely from the business plan, actually. So when you look at outfitting the OBL from the disposable standpoint, you've got to look at your case mix. You've got to look at what you specialize in, what your 
core of your OBL, your practice, what it is. And if you understand that and define that, I think it helps you then decide, you know, where to invest in supplies and do it in an organized fashion. Because it, it was daunting initially. I had, I remember sitting at a, a brewery with, you know, my lead tech and my director going through a list of everything we need from sheaths to wires, but we were shotgunning and not really. So then we took a, you know, we backed up and, and looked at it again in a more structured fashion. And I looked at basic supplies from packs to meds to contrast. Then, you know, then I, we thought about more advanced specialized endovascular equipment, you know, atherectomy devices, thrombectomy devices, things like that. And then things that are associated with it, like the IVIS tower, the portable ultrasound that you use in the room, radiation protection, you know, even little things like the floor mats and music for the room, things like that. So when we started organizing it that way and going back to the heart of what we want to do, that helped. And then that's sort of where you know, ultimately, we crossed paths and got introduced to Chaz and what he offered. So the timing was really interesting with that. How did you learn about Chaz and Margin? So, you know, my advisory firm and I and my director, we were starting to look at how we're going to go to our vendors and, and industry partners and start building our inventory. And the president of my advisory firm then said, hey, look, I had a really great conversation with this startup company that will help us procure a lot of this stuff. And I think there's a lot of value to it. So would you be interested in having a conversation with them? And I said, yeah, of course. You know, at minimum, I'll gain some information from talking to this guy who turned out to be Chaz. And so that's sort of how we got initially introduced. Cool. And then Chaz, I, I want you to add to that story, but Real quick, I want to ask you, because this is kind of what I, in my limited experience being in the outpatient setting, when I was opening a new practice, I wasn't quite sure if the people in the hospital that I knew, those relationships were the best people to go to in terms of the sales reps. Are those people good to go to? Or is there another avenue people should take when they're first researching this and trying to decide, okay, do I go with Boston Scientific? Do I go with Terumo? Are those people good resources or does that depend on location? As a general rule, I always try to take a step back and look at everyone's incentives. So how, how are people incentivized? Sales reps that worked with you aggressively at the hospital, say you were all in with the company at the hospital and you did half a million dollars in supplies with them. If you leave the hospital and you go out on your own, they're still getting their same percent commission on your sales. So if you did a half a million with them at the hospital, but now you're going to do the same volume and maybe spend 350000 that sales rep is now taking a cut and could be 10% of that 150. So just trying to make sure that you have the alignment in terms of what someone's incentive is huge. I think the other part is, and Krishna kind of alluded to this, is I think you need to make a list of what's truly important to you on a clinical level and what isn't. You know, when you open your own lab, you're in a foreign environment. You've got the stress of the bills that are coming in every month that are lingering over your head. And then in addition to that, you've got staff that either you're familiar with or you're completely trying to train from scratch, right? And so there's so many factors that are going to weigh in on your experience in that facility and potentially the outcome for the patient. Choose the products that you need to have that are very, very important to you. And then have the comfort to know that outside of that, most of these products are commodities in the sense that there's very subtle nuances from one device to another. Now there's tactile differences for the physician, but they're replaceable. And I think you really got to figure out your communication on the front end. If you let a company know that you're all in with them, 
then your ability to leverage and negotiate against them after that moment becomes much more challenging. So if you have an open mind to explore products, talk to different companies, look at different reps, and then determine what your mix is going to be, that can probably best serve you because going all in with one company is not always the best strategy. That brings me to an area when we were starting this journey and, and ultimately when I decided to partner with Chaz, Chaz said, look, there are so many uncomfortable things you are going to be facing, you know, with this OBL. You're in a new setting. You're out of your comfort zone where you were in the hospital and you were sort of had things, everything at, at your disposal. So he said, let me give you some advice and take away from the supply standpoint any discomfort. So let's pick everything you want and not feel like you're forced or pigeonholed into a smaller assortment. So that was very reassuring and gave me a lot of confidence that I didn't have to worry about the supply piece. And I had every, you know, whether it was one micropuncture sheath and, and a different vendor for a stent, you know, so I had everything that I love to use. And then he said, later, we can then peel things back and look at strategically what we use from a supply standpoint. So that, that helped a lot in the beginning. Yeah. And so another question from the audience was, what are the pros and cons of going with like an all-in-one package? For example, Symphony Suite versus picking and choosing vendors based on personal preference and, you know, go piecemeal, which is kind of what sounds like you did, Krishna. I think Chaz has some opinions on this. Oh, you're going to defer on that one. Okay. Uh, <laughs> first of all, for us, I have customers and, and partners that buy from every company in the industry. And so I'm agnostic of company. I'm here to support what the physician wants in terms of their products of choice and the price points that they're trying to get to. And I think that's great. It's kind of taking away the personal piece and be a little bit agnostic. Every company now, and it's changed since Krishna opened up his facility a couple of years ago, every company now is aligned with somebody. So if you want to buy a Siemens C-arm, you can negotiate additional rebates on top of your fixed prices with a few different vendors. Same for GE, same for Philips, et cetera. You know, Philips is a little bit different because they really focus on putting an OBL together on a structural level for capital equipment. And their portfolio of disposables is not as varied as, say, a Medtronic or a Boston Psy or Cook or Cordis. You know, they're a little bit more myopic in terms of atherectomy, some balloons, you know, et cetera. I, I think the C-arm piece is a really personal piece. I have some physicians who would never use Philips and some physicians who will swear by Philips. And the same thing for GE, Siemens, et cetera. And so you've got to have a piece of equipment that financially is responsible because there's could be a delta of a few hundred thousand dollars on a piece of capital equipment. And that delta could be the difference between profitability in 12 months or profitability in 18 or 20. And so figuring out what you want that's going to give you comfort and then trying to figure out what's aligned with it. I do this exercise with physician entrepreneurs and, and Christian and I did this is we put down all of his wish lists. And then we started to separate into buckets. Well, if you want this, then you should probably buy this from that company as well to give them a little bit more market share, to give you a little bit more leverage. And we started building kind of like a Venn diagram to see where there was overlaps in different categories. And once you take that pragmatic approach, things fall into columns and they fall into categories and your vendors become very evident to you. But I would say that if you were a hundred percent diehard Boston side doctor, then leverage Boston side to get everything that you want from them. But there's very few physicians today that are 100% aligned to any one company. It's not like it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. And the reason why is supply chain, recalls, back orders. I mean, if we just look at Venus stenting, a year ago, we had four or five cents on the market. Now we have one, maybe two, if you can get your hands on them. 
And so you have to have that flexibility. And if you go all in with somebody at some point, you're going to kind of get burned. So do you give up on, you know, let's talk a little bit about negotiating, right? I think some people think, well, if you go in all in on one company, you have a little bit more leverage to negotiate. Whereas if you go piecemeal and involve multiple companies, you kind of lose that a little bit. Is that true? Or is that just kind of like an urban myth? I think there's a little bit of truth. And you also have to understand that every management team in every region of the company may treat their region differently than their equivalent VP in another part of the country. And so there's that human element. My general recommendation, and Krishna, I think it's, it was consistent when you started, and I, hopefully it's consistent today, is that let's be respectful. If you have a rep come in to visit your lab and offer you support, let's just not bring them in for that one $9 item. Give them enough market share where they're committed to you and they're invested in your success, but also you know, have a variance or diversity of vendors to ensure that you're getting great support from a lot of different people. Some companies and manufacturers are much better at marketing campaigns for your center. Some are much better on clinical support. Some have great shipping costs. Some have miserable shipping costs. And so you have to find that right balance. And it's really not a one-size-fits-all formula. It's kind of beautiful how it all evolves over time. And there are times that you might decide, hey, I'm going to pay up. I want this balloon. I know that it's $10 a balloon more expensive than these two competitors. But that balloon in my hand is going to give the best outcome, and I'm going to go with it. And then we figure out where can we peel back some costs in other areas. Is that a fair assessment, Krishna? Yeah, I think, I think that's great. You covered a lot there. One thing that I really appreciate is I had established over years good relationships with a lot of our vendors and industry partners. And a lot of us do. We are friends with some of these folks. We go out with them. It's a natural sort of relationship. But I didn't want that to become difficult when I started the OBL and suddenly I'm the head of the business. It's not the hospital making purchasing decisions. It's me. And so having a resource or a bad cop to help me negotiate and eliminate that dynamic, that awkwardness from my relationship with the vendors who really provide a lot of clinical partnership. And Chaz says other stuff too, like marketing and practice building stuff. So that was nice to have that off my plate and keep my relationship with these folks at a high level. Aaron, the one piece that I would add is that if you were very transparent on the front end, meaning, hey, this is where I think I can use your products. This is where I want to go with you. And we can reevaluate in six months, but this is your space. You're safe here. I want support. I want you to be here. I need the product on time. I want it to be safe and reliable for my patients. That level of transparency in the front end takes out a lot of the politics and the headaches amongst organizations and reps and companies because you're very clear, like, hey, I'm going to use you in this space. I need the next six months to a year to get my feet underneath me and then start showing me some other things when it's organic and an appropriate time to do so. For me, I think that's been the best formula for physicians out there is just having those candid conversations or having someone on your team have those candid conversations because then people know where they stand. Yeah. I mean, I like the idea of that is just like taking that direct interaction, which can be awkward out of your bandwidth, right, Krishna? Because like I've been in that position and, and there's a lot, you know, especially in competitive markets, I'm sure Columbus is, but Dallas as well, where these reps are, they're rotating through all the OBLs in town and they're also spreading information around town about what everybody's up to and stuff and like that. And so I think a degree of, you know, other, like you want them to be there for support, but just having a degree of separation where the negotiating and all that stuff is kind of out of your hands, I think would be, would be helpful. Another thing to jump off of that is I didn't know what's best pricing on stuff. 
And being a small one-man show OBL in Columbus, I don't know if I'm truly getting a great deal on a stent. So having exposure to understand that there's pricing variations, but just to, to know that, hey, I am getting a good deal and having a resource like Chaz tell me, you know, that, hey, we just got an awesome deal on this atherectomy device. You know, that for me was very reassuring. Can we talk real quick about consignment and when that works, how it works and when it works best for NoBL, maybe in the beginning? I can touch a little on it and I think Chaz can expand on that. But for what we have in our OBL, we obviously try to consign everything we can, but the majority of items that we have on consignment are balloons, stents, including covered stents. But what we don't have on consignment are things like guide wires, atherectomy devices, IVUS catheters. And, you know, so that's sort of the breakdown of what we have on consignment and, and what we don't. So, uh, Chaz, I don't know if you want to take that further. Yeah, I, I, you know, every company has different programs and some companies will put everything on a shelf for you. But that is actually kind of sometimes more of a penalty than a gift. Because if you get consigned a box of five wires, now you have to worry about, do you own these wires? Do you not own these wires? Do you have the box to return them if you needed to? Do you have all five? Do you have four of the five, right? And so as a general rule, almost every company out there will consign their stents and balloons. So the things that you need a really wide range on, and that's the other part of this is, you know, for someone to open up an OBL, realize that you may not have all the size options that you had at the hospital because you don't have the storage rooms that the hospitals have for 50 sizes of balloons. However, for the things that you need a selection, that's usually what's consigned. So stents and balloons are always consigned. The things that are pretty focalized in terms of, hey, this is the one device for this, those are the things you're going to buy. But I think as physicians are looking at this, you know, there are three or four programs out there that companies rely on. Consignment, rebates, bundles, and bulk. And each one of them has both their kind of attractive elements and their handcuffs or hooks, if you will. And being careful because, you know, for me, I don't love bundles and I don't love rebates. And because I think they communicate things that are not great for the physician, you know, so what a bundle says is, Hey doc, I know you really want to use product A, but the only way I'm going to give you an amazing price on it is if you use product B and C as well. And you may not want to use those two other products, but in order to maximize the cost, you might bundle those products together. I think that kind of takes away from physician choice and ultimately patient care. Rebates are another thing. Hey, I hear the volume you're going to give me, but I don't believe you. So once you actually get to 100 units a year, I'll give you a check back on everything you should have paid less on from beginning. And so for me, as we work with companies throughout the industry, finding more transparent communication without these hooks or these special programs, I think are really critical. Consignment is a great way for you to get a full supply of product without paying for it. But every company has different policies on whether or not something expires under your watch. How often do you have to let the rep into the lab to count the equipment? All those sort of things are nuanced and can detract from a program if they're not managed the right way. Yeah. Well, thank you for that, guys. We're going to switch gears slightly here and just talk about supply chain issues. A question from the audience was, how are current supply chain issues in other industries also affecting healthcare? For example, you know, going to the grocery store, price of eggs and milk, everything's going up. They claim it's from supply chain issues, but I saw oftentimes where there would be lidocaine shortages in the outpatient space. What are these issues for the OBO owner and like what solutions have you found? 
This is interesting. I had a, a long conversation with my director of operations, Kristen, and a word of advice for everyone in my position, having a Kristen with you is absolutely essential because a company like Margin is on the periphery, but you need that person in your corner, in your office that really understands because the supply chain starts anywhere from the manufacturing of this product till ultimately all the steps until it gets to the patient. And there's a lot of steps I've learned, and especially with the pandemic where things can fall through. And we've got some some stories where Kristen really helped me without me even knowing, you know, things that she has done to fix problems on the fly. And we can touch on some of those. But yeah, Chaz, I don't know if you want to weigh in on, you know, non-medical versus medical and supply chain uh, issues. Of course, before I do. Kristen's absolutely the best. And to piggyback on what Kristen just said, you need to have staff at your facility that feel like they have ownership, you know, that they care. It becomes their home, those patient outcomes are their successes as much as they are yours. And I think where a lot of OBL operators and physician entrepreneurs can fail is they think those staff are interchangeable or replaceable. And really anyone who can make a fire drill go away for you or avoid a headache before you have a headache is worth their weight in stone. Because for all of us, Time is our most critical resource. And if you think about a fire drill at an OBL, say a back order, a recall, a minor recall could eat up two or three hours of staff time among two or three different shareholders in that organization. And so being able to kind of mitigate that risk by having great staff is crazy, crazy important. As, as far as a question on supply chain, it's bad. I went and grabbed a vitamin water before our talk today. And so I ran into CVS to pick one up because it was on the way to the office and half the shelves are empty. And so if you can't find the things you need at your supermarket, supply chain across the board is bad. In healthcare, it's been really amplified over the last two years because of COVID. In fact, there was an article came out last week that spoke to cloth masks. I mean, everyone saw it. You know, CDC says cloth masks are not great anymore. Guess what sold out within 24 hours? Every N95 mask from every vendor in the industry. And so there's not a lot you can do when things evaporate. At the beginning of COVID, there was an issue with nitrile gloves. And unfortunately, globally, there's only two major plants that produce nitrile gloves. And one of them shut down in Asia because of COVID and sickness in their staff. It was a disaster. So the way that you can offset that is don't put all your eggs in one basket. If you are a medline only med-surge nursing supply customer, open up an account with a Henry Schein or a McKesson because the more opportunities you have to buy product, the safer you are. The other thing that I think most OBLs fell victim to is that you're trying to keep everything so lean to maximize profits. But what we often do in that circumstance is we step over a dollar to reach a quarter. And what I mean by that is, yeah, you're not going to put 50 extra atherectomy devices on your shelf, right? At, you know, at 15, 17, $2,000 a piece. However, maybe you should buy an extra case of lidocaine for $150 and have it there because you don't want to $10,000 procedure get canceled over a $13 vial. And I think that's where a lot of operators fail. And so in fact, talking to Kristen a couple of weeks ago, I said, Hey, Kristen, these are popping up on my radars going on back order. Let's buy an extra case of everything, and get it on the shelf. Yeah. You might have an extra thousand dollars in expenses that month, but it'll balance over or round out over the next six months, but you're not going to cancel something or scramble. And if you think about OBLs early on, Kristen, when we were first getting you open, how many times were staff running to a local pharmacy? to get one vial of something. 
And if that's your x-ray tech or that's your nurse, that could be $50 an hour. You're paying them to run to the local mom and pop pharmacy to get you a vial or something. And so being pragmatic on that sort of level as an entrepreneur is really important for people opening up labs. Well, it's interesting. Just this past Friday, we were ordering lunch at the office. You know, we put an order in Chipotle and we called them and they said, well, uh, sorry, guys, we're out of meat. And I'm like, wait, Chipotle is out of meat? I'm like, so, you know, that just kills the entire operation for a day. So to have the fundamental ingredients of your day-to-day work in the OBL, like lidocaine, like contrast, things like that, you know, just have to stay ahead of. Yeah, surgical gloves. You're better off throwing something away than having to cancel a surgery to have something. Well, that's uh, helpful advice. And so, Chaz, on that, like, how do you stay attuned to these supply chain shortages? Is there some like magical website that you go to that tells you all these answers? No, I, you know, a big part of it now is scale. Krishna was actually my second center. And so, two years ago, I just opened, I had a, a nice smile and a good talking point and barely a technology that worked, right? We now have almost 40 facilities in 12 states. And so coast to coast, if I hear about a backwater in one part of the country, I'm already ahead of it and talking to my customers across the rest of the country. The other part of it now is because of my scale, the executives of some of these companies will call me and say, hey, Chaz, just want you to hear this from us. We're going to go on backwater next week. And so local vice presidents, local reps, people are communicating to me and I'm catching that. What I try to do as a smaller organization is I have a number of kind of smaller entities, mom and pop pharmacies. People have a warehouse with gloves here. And so I've been able to go into the underbelly of society and find things when they're at catastrophic back order. Nitrile gloves was an example. I found a local warehouse that had about 25,000 boxes and they were direct shipping to our customers. If lidocaine is on a catastrophic back order, then I've got a few pharmacies in the country I can call and say, hey, Bob, my customer is going to call you in about 30 minutes. Send them a case of lidocaine you have on the shelf. And so we plan ahead for those days, but it's not an absolute protection. You know, supply chain is kind of like today's compliance. You know, everyone used the word compliance to protect themselves or to shield responsibility. Supply chain is becoming that hot topic. But I can tell you with the number of facilities that we serve, supply chain's bad right now. And Chipotle is a great example of that. Uh, in fact, I'm drinking a uh, vitamin water because there was no uh, G20 at the pharmacy right now. You know, beggars can't be choosers. Yeah. I mean, everybody can, anybody that's going grocery shopping can see it. Uh, right in front of our eyes. So it's it's not hard to believe. So this is another question from the audience from Franklin Yao here in Dallas. Um, you know, we're seeing these MSOs form for shared resources in Bain clinics like Chris Bittman's. Are there any similar projects out there for OBLs to help the independent guys? That's an interesting question with the timing. Uh, and I have been actually having some early discussions with a startup MSO that's purely in the endovascular world, looking at endovascular practices with OBLs. There's several advantages, and you guys have a whole episode dedicated to MSOs, but the endovascular and vascular world is now a very hot area for a lot of these. So I have been having some early discussions, and one of the offerings of joining an MSO I'm learning is really helping you with sourcing of supplies and getting better pricing on supplies. So For me, you know, supplies are my biggest outflow bucket for my practice. You know, if I'm running over 52 to 55% overhead for my practice, for me, 37% of that outflow is supplies. So if joining an MSO can save me significantly there, 
it's something I take seriously. Chaz, anything to add to that? Yeah, I would say that there are MSOs and I think the definition of MSO is a little fuzzy because in itself, it's inherently a little fuzzy. Again, I mentioned that before Margin, I was an executive at Lifeline Vascular, uh, which was a division of DaVita. That's no different than Azura for Fresenius, American Vascular based out of Florida. And those organizations are great, but they come at a cost. And for some, the cost is a perfect fit. And for some, there aren't. The general concept between an MSO is that they're going to come in and do everything. And the physician just focuses on clinical care. Well, a lot of people opening up their own lab don't want that. They want to be physician entrepreneurs. They want to reap the headaches and the rewards of that role. And so I think whenever someone opened up an OBL is looking to sign a contract, you really have to consider what are you getting from this and what are you giving up? You know, so your average MSO might take 10%, 11% of all revs. Now, do you need every service that they're offering you? You know, you definitely need uh, billing coding collections, but in the open market, that's a three to 4% cost. You definitely need somebody to Krishna's point for supply chain, but that could be as less than sub 1% of your total refs. And so do you need someone to run HR for you? Do you need somebody to do accreditation on a fixed monthly commitment? And I think for most physicians, those answers are probably no. You can piecemeal the services you need without having to pay for everything that you don't. But for some physicians, they don't have that business acumen. I think Krishna is a different example. You know, he, aside from being a very good human being, he's very pragmatic in his decision-making and his business acumen. Not every physician's that person or has that ability. And so having that self-awareness as an entrepreneur, when you're about to invest, and for many of us who have been up labs, this is your life savings. You're exposing the security of your family for the future by opening the lab. And having the self-awareness to pinpoint what you're good at and what you're not and where you need to fill the gaps. Most people across all specialties of, of life don't have that ability, but that's one of the greatest talents for physician entrepreneurs to know what you're good at and what, are, what you're not. And I think when you surround yourself as a physician and owner of your practice or OBL, AFC, you surround yourself with people who give you different perspectives and opinions there's that intangible that you get, you know, the free advice really from, you know, whether it's Chaz, whether it's my advisory firm, whether it's my lawyer, whoever it may be, a lot of your team, it really helps you negotiate a lot of these things like MSO opportunities or other things that just come at you. Yeah. We're coming up on the hour, guys. And I want to talk about one more thing before we wrap things up. I do think that there's a whole nother podcast topic on staffing. And Chaz, you kind of hinted at it earlier in this the episode, but I think that that is a whole topic on itself that we could have you guys back on to talk about, you know, staffing. But I, I do want to talk about the elephant in the room, which is, you know, reimbursement cuts and, and the cuts that everybody's seeing. And, you know, this is obviously affecting everybody's bottom line, but is there anything Chaz, that you're seeing that can help compensate for that out in the market? Yeah, it's, it's funny. I, I just submitted a, an article uh, on this topic actually yesterday, so it may be out there soon. But when I look at it, we're in the midst of chaos right now. Chaos with the pandemic, both professionally and personally. Chaos with supply chain. Chaos coming at us from the approved rate cuts that are on a hold right now till March. Usually most organizations can't address chaos because they're very vertical. You've got one decision maker that everyone has to go through. And it could be three or four levels to get to that decision maker. 
So for me, I think taking your organization from a very vertical organization to a horizontal where you have good staff members, you have staff members that you can trust and you can give the autonomy to make decisions to. That allows you to leverage and pivot much, much more readily than organizations that are very vertical. For me, with the looming rate cuts, I think there's a few things to do. You need to reassess your products that you're using and determine if there's a need to shift or pivot because most centers that we come across and, you know, I'm probably 40, 45% new constructions, 50, 60% existing centers in my network. Almost every center that we meet has a huge opportunity for cost savings, anywhere from 15 to 20% of their total spent. When you look at globally, everything that's bought from a syringe to a mask to whatever. So looking at your product mix, there's definitely an ability to save some costs there without compromising clinical care. And then I think you need to look at your procedure mix. There are procedures that most of these centers are focused on deep vein or they're focused on arterial work or dialysis access, but they're not looking at uterine fibroids or PAEs. And there are a lot of procedures out there that you can train to do or bring someone in to cover for you to expand the usage at your facility that have very good reimbursements that are critically needed in your community and have a low cost of supplies needed to perform the procedure. And so even though you love doing case A, you may have to look at your procedure mix to see if there's other procedures that make sense. The other thing, and this is a tricky one and it's so nuanced, is what sort of facility are you running? Are you running an OBL? Should you be in an ASC? Should you have a hybrid? What are the implications of a hybrid? And that you're going to need help with. Uh, you're going to need to have really the right legal minds that can coach you in your community because some states are CON states, so you need a certificate of need. Other states may not be CON states, but they have such a huge hospital lobbying power that you're not going to get approved or credited anyhow. So looking at the facility you run, coupled with the procedures that you're doing is important. And then three, look at your capacity. Most facilities are not at full capacity. And so if you have extra time, are there extra cases you can bring in? Should you sublet your facility to somebody and move cases to four days a week so someone could rent your facility on a fifth? Do you bring in another physician to cover cases that you're not equipped to do? I think there's a lot of nuances that can be done by a physician entrepreneur to ensure that they are well prepared for these rate cuts. And at the optics of them, they're, they're almost catastrophic. I faced this at DeVita in 2017 when we had a 34% reduction in dialysis access cases in the OBL. And we had to close centers. And many centers that closed didn't have the capacity or desire to change what they were doing. And so just like in our personal lives, we all have to evolve and swallow things that we might not want to do. There are times that you're going to have to make that decision for your business as well. You know, we're, uh, these cuts, wherever they settle that 10 to 15% are still hugely impactful on us. And if we look at cost savings that we can do immediately, opportunities we have, I mean, it starts from simple things like your front desk person and reception. Are they getting the most up-to-date and accurate insurance information? Are we getting pre-cert done on every single patient? Our goal in our practice is to have 100% pre-cert done on every patient. Accurate coding, charge capture, nearly half of cardiovascular reports when you audit them or have coding errors. Managing your denials. You know, if only 1% of denials are actually appealed in most practices out there, but when you actually appeal them, more than half, more than 50%, you have successful reversal in payments. So there's cost-saving opportunities there that we can look at low-hanging fruit within our own practices. 
And then there's tons of intra-procedural cost savings. This is almost another show is, you know, what are all the little tricks and pearls that we've all gained and learned just in day-to-day procedural, you know, whether it's using an 18-gauge angiocatheter instead of a micropuncture sheath on cases. Tons of little stuff where we can chip away to neutralize a lot of these cuts that we're dealing with. The other thing I'd add, Aaron, is, you know, what resources are you already paying for? I know so many OBL owners that will hire outside local marketing people. And in some circumstances, it makes sense. But for my opinion, it's you've got a clinical team that is passionate and stands with you every day in the lab, seeing you perform cases. So if you can offset some of their responsibilities and give them a list of one or two referring offices to hit on their way home, drop off your own brochure and talk nurse to nurse, grad tech to physician, whatever. If you have those clinical members that are part of your team that you trust represent you, they're always going to speak more highly of you than some random marketing person that you're going to hire in a local community. And those are huge, huge revenue streams. Yeah. And they're probably better on social media too. You just give them an Instagram account and say, hey, put some pictures out there of our smiling faces. And, you know, I mean, that sort of thing I've seen too. People getting creative with social media. TikTok. Yeah. Yeah. Put some dance videos together. Yeah. But I mean, what's cool. Chaz, and you kind of alluded to this, and Christian and I have talked about it, is what's really neat to see out there is IRs, vasosurgeons, cardiologists teaming up under the same practice, right? To build out that diversity of cases so that you kind of, it, it builds that insurance that, okay, they might cut over here, but we're still good over here. And we all work together to build the practice. And so like, for example, you know, Blake Parsons and Jim Melton's practice seems like they've done really well in that sense. But, you know, but I got the diversity of cases that they bring in. So, you know, I, I was joking with Krishna about his next hire should be an interventional radiologist, <laughs> which would be cool to see. Aaron, Columbus is a little bit cooler of a city than Dallas. So, you know, there's always opportunity. I know it is. There's season tickets to the Buckeyes that I could always pick up. But along that note, you know, when I'm transitioning to phase two, as my practice continues to grow... And Chaz touched on this is, you know, having a hybrid or having a, an ASC or an OBL or what, what direction. And for me, the way I'm going is I'm going to try to pull off both, have a multi-specialty ASC next door to my single specialty OBL that's part of my practice. That way, I'm hoping I can decide what's the best location, the best site of service for me from an efficiency standpoint, from a reimbursement standpoint, from a patient safety standpoint. And if we can pull it off next door to each other, then that leaves us a lot of flexibility down the road. So I'll let you know if I pull it off and if it works. It's definitely going to work and you're going to pull it off. But I think one of the things that's been most confusing to me in my career in healthcare has been just physicians playing together in the same sandbox. And for whatever rhyme or reason, this kind of niche of the world, it's just hard to get physicians who are of different specialties to partner and look at it together. And I think one of the problems that I hear all the time from people is that everyone kind of takes a look and figures out what they're giving up as opposed to what they're gaining. And if you put so much emphasis on what you're giving up as opposed to what the benefit is, that's the challenge that we have in healthcare is everyone's worried about what are we giving up? And it's really, for most partnerships, one plus one should equal three. 
And we don't see that sort of mentality of how do I go into this where I'm contributing and I'm getting something out of it. And yes, I'm giving something up, but I'm happy about the reward as opposed to the spoils. And I hope, you know, as we see more and more successful ventures between multi-specialty facilities, I hope it becomes more of the norm than kind of the one-off kind of Moby Dick scenario that exists out there. Well, guys, thank you so much. I think that's a great place to end it. I wanted to thank our audience questions that came from some other OBO owners out there. Brett Weichman, Mary Costantino, Franklin Yao, Tim Yates. Thank you guys for submitting questions. And again, lots more to talk about here. We could probably do a whole other episode on supply chain issues. Definitely want to do an episode with you guys on staffing because that was definitely an issue that I had in the outpatient setting. So I'm just going to send the invitation now for you guys to bring you back here shortly. Thanks again, guys. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks, Chaz. Hey, guys, this was a fantastic opportunity. Thank you for letting me be a part of it. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, Brian Hartley. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Zubi Syed. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. And newsletter by Lauren Fang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.